0: Please turn in your Bible to the gospel according to Mark chapter 9. Our attention this morning will be devoted to the transfiguration. And in just a moment, I have quite the privilege. I have the privilege of reading aloud to those I love God's Word. In just a moment, God will re-speak through the reading of his Word. In just a moment, listen, God will make eye contact with each and every one present through the reading of his Word. God authoritatively and kindly is addressing each of us this morning. So let's listen up with hearts filled with anticipation for God delights in revealing himself through the reading and the proclamation of his word. Mark chapter nine, verse one. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here Who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore All things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Well-known and much-loved author John Piper wrote the following single-sentence description of why we read the Bible. We go to the Bible, he wrote, to be astonished. We go to the Bible to be astonished, to be amazed at God and Christ and the cross and grace and the gospel. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were truly astonished? When was the last time you were truly astonished, genuinely amazed by what you read in Holy Scripture or heard preached from Holy Scripture? This experience of the transfiguration, Mark intends for the reader to be astonished. Now, it, it would be unwise for me to assume that you were astonished or even amazed by the mere reading of the transfiguration. For even though the transfiguration is one of the best known stories about Jesus, it is also among the least understood. And if you don't understand what took place here, if you don't understand what's going down here and why, well then you won't be astonished. And amazed so let 's attempt this morning to discover why this took place so that we might experience mark 's intent for including this event, this unique intrusion of the glory of God in salvation history, because this event and what is revealed in and through this event it is simply astonishing. It is profoundly amazing what took place here. And though Peter, James, and John, they didn't anticipate this event, oh my, I'm thinking that their hearts were no doubt very stirred and filled with expectation upon hearing Jesus say in verse 1, truly I say to you, there are some standing here Who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some, some standing here, will see the power and the glory of the kingdom before they taste death. Now, when you consider the miracles that Jesus had already performed. When you consider the miracles that these guys had already observed. They had to be wondering, what could What could this unusual, extraordinary manifestation and demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God possibly be? And they also had to be thinking, will I be one of the sum? So we have got some serious drama unfolding here before our eyes. But we also need to give attention to the details. And Mark provides details, intentionally so. And he draws our attention to details. And actually verse 2 would begin with one such detail that might not be immediately obvious. Verse 2, and after six days. That notation actually is unusual in Mark's gospel. It's actually the first of its kind in Mark's gospel. So up to this point, Mark has made no attempt to provide the reader with specifics about days. So this is the first time prior to the passion story where that specific is provided. And this reference to six days, oh my, this bears a striking similarity to the greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament. Given the event that immediately follows, this would seem to recall Moses and his six days of preparation prior to God appearing to him on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. It it appears Mark is alerting us that a new Moses has come. That one greater than Moses has come. One greater than Moses intending to lead his own exodus of those held captive by sin. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Question, why just these guys? Why just these three? Well, one reason would be that Peter, James, and John, they're going to figure prominently in the future of the church. Through their leadership and writing, these three guys, they're going to play a strategic role in the advance of the gospel through the church as described in and throughout the book of Acts. And actually, this would be the second occasion where Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to accompany him by themselves. The first would have been when they they made their way to the house of Jairus where they would eventually witness Jesus raising the daughter of Jairus from the dead. So, here's what I'm thinking. Given their previous experience, (laughs) being issued an exclusive invitation to come with him that culminates in Jesus raising the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Given that previous experience, and perhaps informed by what Jesus has said in verse 1, One can't help but wonder if their hearts weren't stirred with some serious anticipation as they made their way up the mountain. And by the way, we must make note of this detail as well. It was a high mountain. In scripture, high mountains were a place of revelation. So this reference to a high mountain recalls Mount Sinai, recalls Mount Horeb. However, regardless of their previous experience with Jesus and whatever anticipation may have been in their hearts, they, they simply were not prepared for what took place. They, they had no clue and they had no category for what was going to take place as they arrived on the top of the mountain. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant as no one on earth could bleach them in a moment. In a moment without, it doesn't appear, any apparent preparation. So Jesus didn't assemble them and say, watch this. No, there appears to be no preparation. Suddenly, abruptly, he is transfigured before them. The veil of his humanity is lifted and his intrinsic glory was revealed to them. His glory that was previously veiled by human flesh was suddenly visible. It was a revelation of his concealed majesty and splendor. And Jesus, he isn't merely reflecting the glory of God as Moses did. No, this was his true nature. His intrinsic glory revealed and the effect. Extended even to his clothes. Mark provides us with an analogy in his attempt to, in effect, describe the indescribable. Intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Oh my, these guys would never forget this. Sight. Peter would later write in 2 Peter, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John would later write, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. And there's another important detail. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Why Elijah? Why Moses? well it would it would appear that they are representing the entire prophetic tradition and they are in effect confirming the entirety of the old testament as bearing witness to the one transfigured and then we're informed of peter's reaction to this sight and scene rabbi it is good that we are here it's good that we're here let us make three tents one for you one for moses one for elijah for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Listen, I, when I read the Gospels, I always find hope for myself in the failure of the disciples. I do. I always find hope for myself in the failure of the disciples. And Peter in particular. Donald English in his commentary writes, It would not evidently have occurred to Peter not to say, anything. (laughs) Of an Irish background, the Irish have a saying, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and to remove all doubt. By the way, it's never wise to inform others that it's good that we are here. <laughs> if, somebody, if somebody invites you over to their house this afternoon. Don't interrupt what the proceedings at some point and say. It's just good that we're here. Okay. If they invited you, let them bring that evaluation if it's appropriate. It's, it's, not, it's not just, it's just not wise. And Peter's proposal, well, it clearly confirms the man is clueless. He is clueless about what is taking place here. Let us make three tenths. Why three? It, it would appear, it would appear he is implying equality of personhood. By the way, he has just at the end of chapter eight identified Jesus as the Christ. So just preceding this event, he has identified Jesus as Christ the Messiah. So this proposal of three-tenths, it is a most inappropriate proposal. Because, why? Because the transfiguration reveals the uniqueness of Jesus, not the uniqueness of Elijah and Moses. Only, listen, only Jesus was transfigured. Elijah and Moses were not transfigured. And it appears that the purpose of Peter's proposal is is to prolong the experience. It's good for us to be here, he announces, because we can make tents. It's good for us to be here because we can make tents, and those tents will only prolong this experience. Those tents will make this experience of glory permanent. What's Peter revealing here? He's revealing that he still doesn't get the cross. He still doesn't get the necessity of the cross. And because he doesn't get the necessity of the cross, it leaves him vulnerable to wanting to remain here. I like it here. This is what the Messiah is all about. You're about this kind of glory. So, let's make tense. Let's stay here. Let's make what's going down here permanent. He's stumbling. What is he stumbling at? He's stumbling at the necessity of a Messiah who is crucified. Peter is familiar with Psalm 2. It appears he's less familiar with Psalm 22. Jesus has actually just informed them he must suffer. This was only intended to be momentary. Peter's impulse was, let's make it permanent. And then notice Mark informs us, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. By the way, if you ever find yourself terrified and you don't know what to say, you won't regret saying nothing. Okay. <laughs> I recommend nothing. <laughs> I recommend say nothing. And by the way, this detail, it really does appear to be a humble acknowledgement by Peter. Since Mark's gospel is considered a first-hand account primarily informed by Peter, this seems to be a humble inclusion. One scholar identifies this phrase, for he did not know what to say, as Peter's apology. So if so, give it up for Peter. It's apparent he didn't know what to say, and he would have been wiser to remain silent, but it is obvious that God the Father has heard enough, God the Father has heard enough and he intervenes. A cloud overshadows Peter, James, and John. And a voice comes out of the cloud. This, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So God the Father makes clear, Peter, your proposal is ill-advised. Peter, 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 listen. Stop talking. Listen. And listen to him. And then verse 8. Suddenly. Looking around. They no longer saw anyone. But Jesus only. It's almost like just as suddenly as it started. It concluded. And now his glory is once again concealed. And they begin to make their way down the high mountain. Jesus in verse 9 charges them to tell no one charges them to tell no one because the transfiguration, listen, the transfiguration was not the message they were to proclaim. This experience of the transfiguration, it, it would have been consistent, it would have been consistent with the popular Jewish expectation of the Messiah. And so he intentionally prohibits them. William Lane writes in his commentary that the reality of his exaltation as the transfigured son, listen, can be appreciated only can be appreciated only when the significance of his sufferings has been grasped. Can be appreciated only. What happened here can be appreciated only when the significance of his sufferings has been grasped. One can only truly, accurately perceive his glory after the cross and in light of the cross. So to see Jesus in all his glory, one must see him as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So he puts this prohibition in place until his resurrection because only after his resurrection will they truly understand his identity and his mission. Because his glory can only truly be known following his suffering and his death. So in verse 10, they are puzzled. They are puzzled by his reference until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Didn't have a category for this reference resurrection they didn't they listen they didn't understand why the messiah would die that was just for these men disturbing news unsettling news jesus would pull them aside and on three different occasions prepare them for his death the son of man must suffer and be killed and on each of those occasions this was the most unsettling and disturbing of news to them it did not conform with their expectation of the messiah as the tri- Triumphant one. It did not conform to their anticipation of the Messiah as revealed on this high mountain with this display of glory. They could not reconcile the triumphant Messiah of Psalm 2 with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They read the scriptures selectively. Therefore, they were not prepared. For his suffering. They didn't understand why he would die. And why and what being raised from the dead was all about. Listen, this was just all incomprehensible to these guys. They anticipated a triumphant Messiah. A conquering Messiah. Not a crucified Messiah. However, having just seen Elijah... This reminds them of a question they've been meaning to ask Jesus. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? The scribes taught from Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come preparing the way, restoring all things. This is the expectation of Elijah's return. It was rooted in Malachi chapter 4. So they're asking, how can you be the Messiah if he Elijah doesn't come first. And if he does come first and restore all things, well then, if he comes first and restores all things, why would the Messiah need to suffer and be killed? It was just all very confusing and perplexing to these guys. Jesus responds, you are right. Elijah must come first. However, he has already come. He has already come in the form of John the Baptist. John fulfilled the prophetic role that Malachi promised. And though John the Baptist is not named here... It's an obvious uh, reference to him. And in Matthew, we are informed that the disciples understood this to be a reference to him. And Jesus describes the death of John the Baptist by Herod with the phrase, and they did to him whatever they pleased. But here's what I want you to notice. Notice that Jesus seizes their question as an opportunity to ask them a question. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer? How is it written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. What's he doing? He is challenging the assumptions of the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples in relation to the Messiah. The preparatory work of Elijah, John the Baptist, it doesn't eliminate the need, the necessity for the Messiah to suffer. So again, with this statement, Jesus appears to be clearly alluding to Isaiah 53. And clearly, they have been reading the scriptures selectively. So he intentionally draws their attention to what is written about the Son of Man and the necessity of his suffering because this is the secret and the purpose of his messianic mission. He must suffer. He must suffer. His exaltation is inseparably related to his humiliation. The one they just observed transfigured must suffer. He must suffer and be killed. For this is why he has come. He has come to serve. Not to be served. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. So, what are we, what are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to learn from the transfiguration? Like, Why did this happen? And why has it been preserved for us in God's divinely inspired word? First, the purpose of the transfiguration was to care for the disciples. That was the purpose of this. It was to care for Peter, James, and John. It's very clear. This happened for them. Notice how many references to them took with him by themselves. And he was transfigured before them And there appeared to them, Elijah and Moses. And a cloud overshadowed them. There's just no doubt. There's no doubt that this is for them. This is another expression of his love for them. He knows they're unsettled. He knows they're disturbed. He knows they're confused. He sees the change in their facial expression when he informs them that he must suffer. And be killed. He knows they are clueless. And this is an expression of his care for them. They're unsettled. They're troubled. They are fearful as a result of his very plain words that he would be killed. And they are also troubled and fearful as he requires them to take up their cross. There are implications From his statements about his death and implications from his statements about their picking up a cross. Do you understand? At this time, it was unthinkable for a cross to be a piece of jewelry. It was unthinkable. It was the cruelest expression, the cruelest form of punishment. And he's referencing it in relation to himself. And then applying it in relation to them. And he sees their troubled facial expressions. And he feels their troubled hearts. They left it all to follow him. And they love him. And now he's broken the news to them. I will be killed. They don't even hear when he says... And rise from the dead. They have no category for that either. This is not. Our understanding of the long awaited. Triumphant glorious Messiah. And then he talks to them. About their cross. So. He cares for them. He cares for them by saying. Peter James and John. Why don't you come with me. I'm going to go up on a high mountain. You'll see. And then he's transfigured before them. He reveals the glory previously hidden from them. What's going on? Oh, this is a foreshadowing of his resurrection. This is a foreshadowing of his resurrection. It's a foreshadowing of his second coming as well. It's a preview. They got to see the preview. The preview of the resurrection. And the preview of the second coming. Which actually he referenced in chapter 8 verse 38. So they're getting a preview. And not only is his transfiguration a heavenly preview for them. It forms then a heavenly confirmation. For them to hear the father overwhelm them. And overshadow them with a cloud. And then speak from that cloud. This is my beloved Son, the father confirms the uniqueness of Jesus. The father is not going to tolerate any perception of equality of persons. There's not going to be three tenths. because there is only one son. So enough of Peter's nonsense. The father can't restrain himself anymore and really, as an expression of his care for all of them, he intervenes and says, this is my beloved son. And then notice, listen to him. And by the way, this heavenly command, it's, not, it's probably not a general command. It would appear to be a very specific reference to the prediction Jesus just made of his suffering and his death. So it appears God the Father is directing their attention Two, the divine must in chapter eight, verse thirty-one. The son of man must suffer. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. However, one scholar says, however, improbable it may appear, it is the son of God who will suffer and die. So this is all a wonderful confirmation of his mission. It's a wonderful confirmation and it is a heavenly assurance of his future exaltation. The transfiguration was an expression of his care for them. It was assuring and strengthening their troubled hearts for the difficult days that Jesus knew lay ahead for their hearts. So the transfiguration was an expression of his care for Peter, James, and John. Ultimately, all the disciples as well. Secondly, the transfiguration is an expression of his care for us. It's an expression of his care for us. Listen, this is meant, this is meant to comfort and assure each and every one of us this morning regardless of present difficulties or difficulties that lay ahead. We we, we tend to think that you you had to be there in order to be affected. In other words, I wasn't there. I wasn't there because I wasn't there. I can't be affected. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. Mark wasn't there. Uh, The other nine weren't there. Mark's original audience reading his gospel, they weren't there. No, no. (laughs) You didn't have to be there. And by the way, Peter, who obviously was there, listen to what he wrote. We, in 2 Peter, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. Listen. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, listen to this pivot. And we, have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, oh, Peter said, "Yes, I was there, I was an eyewitness, but listen up, we have something more sure. We have they prophetic word that's what we have this morning to which he says you do well to pay attention you think that might have been informed by his experience when he was there (laughs) just as God the father told him listen up to my son Peter then speaks to us this morning and says you would do well to pay attention to The prophetic word. Because that word is actually more sure. In effect. You did not have to be there. In order to be affected by what took place there. So. Here are just a few ways. Oh just a few. Here are just a few ways that his love. For sinners like you and me. Is evident. In and through the transfiguration. His is love for sinners like you and me is evident in the conversation that Elijah and Moses are having with Jesus. His love for you is evident in that conversation. They were talking with Jesus, Mark notes. And in Luke's account, we are informed about the content of the conversation. Luke writes, they spoke, Elijah and Moses, spoke of his departure They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Oh, my. So if you ever wondered, what was the supreme interest of Elijah and Moses in that brief conversation as Jesus is transfigured? Wonder no more. Elijah and Moses. They had seen this day from afar. And in those few moments of conversation with Jesus, there was one dominant category. What was about to happen on a hill called Calvary just outside of Jerusalem for another exodus, the exodus was underway and would be accomplished as he hung suspended between heaven and earth, bearing In his body, our sins and the weight of God's righteous wrath against our sins. There was only one topic of interest for Elijah and Moses as they interacted with the transfigured Jesus. It was his impending death. That was their supreme interest because all of their work prior in their lifetime was preparatory for that event that was going to take place on a hill called Calvary. Donald MacLeod, in his book Christ Crucified, wrote, The attitude of the heavenly visitors differs completely from that of the disciples. The cross is all Moses and Elijah want to talk about. The cross was what all heaven was talking about. The transfiguration is brief and it ends suddenly. And when it ends, only Jesus remains. Only Jesus remains. Elijah and Moses. Gone. They disappear. Jesus. He remains. Why does he remain? He remains. Because he must. Descend this high mountain. To make his way. To a lowly hill. He must. Remain. For he has come. To be. The sin. Bearing. Wrath. Absorbing. Substitute. For sinners. Like you and me. Why was the transfiguration brief? It was brief because that's not why he came. It was brief because he had work to do. It was brief because he had to make his way to Jerusalem. Again, James Edwards helpfully writes, Rather than escaping with his heavenly visitants to glory, Jesus remains to complete his journey to Jerusalem. So it all begins on a high mountain. But what takes place there is brief. Because the Son of Man has come to make his way to a lowly hill called Calvary. See, you can't understand the lowly hill unless you understand what happened on the high mountain. And you can't understand the high mountain without understanding the lowly hill. On the mountain, he was transfigured. He was enveloped by God the Father who affirms the uniqueness of the Son. And affirms his unique love for the Son. But he will remain And he will make his way down from that mountain in order to make his way to a lowly hill where he, where the unimaginable will take place. The Father who loves his beloved Son. The Father with whom he has had uninterrupted fellowship somehow without severing the unity of the Trinity he will make his way from that high mountain to a lowly hill where he will hang suspended between heaven and earth and on that hill he will not be enveloped by the Father's cloud or affirmation but instead for hours, Mark tells us Darkness covers the entirety of the land. It would appear to be supernatural, atmospheric confirmation of the judgment for our sin that was taking place on that lowly hill. And on that hill, he would cry out, My God! Just prior to that, he had been interacting with him as father. Now, my God, why? Because the father has forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his holiness, the Father has forsaken him. It is the most painful aspect and painful moment of the cross. When you think of the cross, do not think first and foremost about the unimaginable physical pain. No, no. This was the crucifixion, in effect, within the crucifixion, being forsaken. By the Father, as He hangs there suspended, experiencing the full and furious righteous wrath of God for our sin, and He does so, and He does so alone, He does so. In darkness, not enveloped by glory. He does so not transfigured, but instead in his humanity. Absorbing and experiencing all the pain, physical and spiritual. He does so not hearing the assuring voice of his father. This is my beloved son, whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. No, as he cries out, my God, my God, it's met with silence. Because he's alone. On the mountain, he hears God's voice affirming his love. On the hill, all he hears is silence. On the mountain, there's dazzling glory. On the hill, there's only darkness. So, why did he go from the high mountain to the lowly hill? Why did he remain? Why not escape with his heavenly visitors? One primary reason. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves sinners like you and me. The transcendent one who was briefly transfigured, the one all the law and the prophets anticipated, he becomes the humiliated one, dying a death of shame, bearing our sins. Absorbing the wrath that we deserved. Why? Here's why. So that sinners like you and I could be forgiven of all our sins. Forgiven. So that those who turn from their sins and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins could be forgiven of All their sins forgiven of all their sins and not only forgiven of their sins, but freed from fear of future wrath. Those who have been forgiven of their sins live today aware that the verdict of the future has been brought into the present. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we are not only forgiven of our sins, we are freed from fear of future wrath freed from fear of future wrath because the one who came down from that mountain having been transfigured was instead disfigured for us on the cross so that we might be forgiven and freed from the fear of future wrath. He was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. Why did this occur? This occurred so that this morning, Father, Son, and Spirit might draw near to us in this place and, in effect, say, Not love you. In effect, say to us, How can you doubt my love for you? Behold what I did for you. It's astonishing. astonishing brothers and sisters this is astonishing simply and profoundly amazing don't you think let's pray father we we can just scarcely take this in <laughs> Here's what I pray, Lord. I just pray that for those who've had just a pattern of doubt about your love, that they would be convinced. That, they would, that, they would this, that this morning they would not look subjectively within, but instead objectively without to this scene, to, this, to what happened on this high mountain, and then what happened on that lowly hill. And may what happened on both convince all of us of your love for us. Oh, Lord, haven't you been good? Haven't you been so good to us? Thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for suffering in our place and satisfying the wrath of God as our substitute. So that we might be forgiven and never forsaken. We are so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.